Hello and welcome to Some Ornithological Chat, the podcast brought to you by the Scottish Ornithologists Club. If you're short for time, that's SOC by the SOC. Today we welcome a guest who moved house so that he didn't have to talk to me anymore. It's Mr Will Miles. Hello, Will. Hi, Mark. I'm not sure that's entirely true. Like Shetland, uh, Shetland had a kind of pool. But yeah, we used to live, uh, well, we, we virtually used to live next door, didn't we? We did. And we, we, shared, we shared a local, which... Uh, I guess the less we say about that, the better, really. <laughs> yeah, it was it was good. That was good. It was good. So we're not here to to reminisce, unfortunately. Um, we're here to talk about a couple of books that you've been involved in recently. But first of all, can you tell us, just for the listeners, who you are, where you are, and what you do? Sure. Um, so so I'm Will Miles. Uh, I work for Sotiang which is the Shetland Oil Terminal Environmental Advisory Group. And my speciality for them is monitoring seabirds all across Shetland um, in pretty much every month of the year. Um, I'm on Shetland at the moment. I live here permanently. Um, and yeah, this year has, well, everybody would have seen it in the news. It's been a very busy and, and very difficult and very sad year for um seabirds on Shetland, particularly gannets and bonxies with the with the bird flu. So that, yeah, that's that's kept us busy a lot this season. Um, but the kind of good news is that so far in Shetland, we haven't really seen a big um, mortality in any other species other than gannet or bonxy. I'm kind of clinging onto my wooden desk here as I say that. Um, but the other species seem to be doing OK at the moment. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of kept me bright this season, too. Well, that's really, I mean, I think it's it's really important that there is some good news because it can be pretty overwhelming, certainly on social media, all the videos of, of birds struggling and, the you know, the sort of right talk about doom and gloom. It's great that there is some some positivity coming out of it. But while, you, while you're clinging on to your desk, uh, can you tell me some of the things you've seen from the window there? That's uh, that should change the mood sufficiently. <laughs> From the window, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, it, it's it's an incredibly lucky and I guess privileged position to to work up here. And um, looking out of the window, um, my view is across Leavenworth Bay. So, oh man, you know, Shetland being Shetland, um, occasionally there are orca come by, and um, there's there's migrant birds you see every year like the, the the visible migration here is as everybody knows pretty spectacular at times with with some great rarities um so i've i've not actually seen anything super rare from from my window but you know the sight of cranes flying by and white-tailed eagles and um i was i was absolutely ecstatic to to see an osprey from my garden this year, I, you know, like growing up in Cambridgeshire, which is a landlocked county with not very many ospreys, so yeah. the thought of seeing one of those from your garden like never really crossed my mind for many years. So, yeah, I was I was I was elated with that. So that was brilliant. That sounds that sounds nice, and that's taken us on to the sort of the Shetland birding scene really nicely. So the, going back to these books that you've been involved in, uh, so the first one that I'd like to talk to you about is the Birds of Fair Isle. Is that is that the title of the book? Yeah, it will be. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, so yeah, it's it's just a super exciting project. I'm I'm absolutely fired, and again, uh, I can't really believe that I'm involved in it. But um, yeah, I kind of have been working on it the last sort of winter. The projected um, publication date is is 
2024. Um, so yeah, we've got another winter of writing um, to do yet. But yeah, it's it's a really exciting project. So tell me about the book a bit. What's the, what's the sort of format of the book? Well, the, you know, like there's a high benchmark already for these kind of things. So the Birds yeah. of Spurn really set a, a new a new kind of aim and ambition. And so the the author team for the Birds of Ferrar, which is um, Ian Andrews. So he's kind of the lead author. And then Roger Riddington, Paul Harvey, Derek Shaw, Steve Arlo, Rebecca Nason and, and, and me. Um, we're, we're hoping to produce something for Ferrar that is as good, if not better than the Birds of Spurn. So it's it's a very uh, big ask because, yeah. of course, Andy Roadhouse sets such a high bar. Yeah, it's an the amazing quality book. of the Birds of Spurn. And, you know, like there were so many other people that contributed to that. And, and it really sort of showed off and gave a very, very good insight into what goes on at Spurn and the, and the great work that they do there, as well as all this sort of fabulous artwork. So yes. we're hoping to produce something, as I say, like as good, if not better than that. And I think I think we're kind of we're kind of gifted with the birds of Feral in that Feral has so much history and and kind of quality itself. Um, so it's obviously a very different kind of site to Spurn, but at the same time, I don't think there's any birder who would disagree that it's right up there. It's a fantastic site for yeah. migration and for seabirds, and then for for just the duration of the observatory and, and ornithological recording there. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, I've sort of written down a, bu a bunch of things that I'd like to ask you about and, you know, think rarities, seabirds, so, you know, some of the really interesting land birds such as the, the endemic wrens and then your uh, your work on, on migrants, which you um, which you did maybe four or five years ago now, that is, I guess, or maybe even more. Um, and I guess all of that sort of thing is going to be in the book, right? Yeah, that's right. So we're we're trying to distill all that information and and present it in a readable and, and really accessible way. And one of the I, I suppose that that is a very challenging thing to do because there is just so much information that's been gathered on Farewell and all the kind of years and years of the intensive migrant survey and then decades of systematic seabird recording. Um, you know, like as well as all the sort of ad hoc stuff that comes into it that is maybe more interesting from a kind of human perspective as well. So there's so many different um, types of information, but every type of information has this incredible sort of heritage spanning, in some cases, nearly 100 years. So it's quite a task that we face. Um, but that's really the aim to just try to distill that into a kind of accessible and readable and, and hugely sort of informative um, medium and this book um, and so so we kind of have two winters to do that um, the next winter coming up included um, and that's really like our, our task ahead and it, yeah it's it's a formidable task. It sounds it sounds like a really nice project and yeah I can see why you're really excited to, to be involved in it. It's not the first time that anyone's written about the Birds of Fair Isle I guess sort of most recently um, the Birds of Shetland was published that was way back in 2004 and that featured you know bird records from Farrell what what's going to be in this new book that hasn't been covered in um all these previous iterations of of this sort of of book a, apart from 20 years more data well, I think I think the the main thing is is just the way that it's handled and the kind of insight that we can now give to it 
and and also it's it's a much bigger book than anything that's come before so you're right about birds of shetland there's a lot of information about Isle quite rightly in that book but then that that book also had a huge amount of space in fact most of the space dedicated to other parts of shetland of course yeah and and you know the the other publication that was made the also called the birds of fair art was was by nick diamond in um <clears throat> 1991 and that was quite a thin volume i mean it it was it was very good and there was some kind of analysis and and insight into what was going on on fair art. It, it was a really nice account um but we're hoping to you know look into the the information and the data in a lot more detail and as I say, to kind of really try to put it out in a way that is more accessible and, and just a kind of nicer publication to to have and to look at and to to read. And I think I think that that's where the Birds of Spurn has been a real kind of steer for us in that they've produced something that presents all their kind of data in a very, very accessible style. But then also alongside it, they have all these sort of wonderful images that really kind of I guess they kind of really inspire you to like look look into the the information even more. You know, mm. sometimes you get a book, and I think like that it's a, it's a fair criticism of the Birds of Fair that Nick Diamond wrote in 1991 that there wasn't a huge um, option to put you know colourful images or artwork. So yeah. it's mostly text, and the Birds of Shetland is similar, but of course like publication and the way people look at data and present it and write about it has all come on massively since those conditions. So we're really trying to kind of bring that all together and create a book that is is massively informative and really does justice to all this information that over the decades have been collected by wardens and and also, you know, the visitors to Fair are themselves or the visiting birders um, and and presents it in a kind of attractive and accessible way that hopefully is not just transfer of information but is also kind of exciting and inspiring and really kind of does the place justice i think i know exactly what you mean i mean i've, I've got birds of shetland and you know on my sort of few trips to shetland it's something that i've taken down off the shelf and and referred to how you know i wonder when this species is, is most likely to occur i wonder how many records of that etc but it's not the sort of book I would sit down and sort of browse and read, I guess, for, for pleasure. Not that there's anything wrong with any of the way it's written or anything like that. But then I look at um, another really nice example of, of the sort of thing you're talking about, I think, is uh, the, the Birds of Chew Valley Lake, which was recently published, which is full of data and information about birds. But there is barely a page goes by that doesn't have an illustration or a photograph or, you know, people have really thought about how they're going to tell each of these different stories to, to make the book as engaging as it can be. Yeah, I, I just I just totally agree with you. I think I think the way information is presented, as I say, is it's come on a long way, even in the last sort of five to ten years. And it's now possible to present information or maybe people are just more aware of two kind of axes with this, like two kind of ways of looking at it. There's one, OK, we're presenting like a historical record which which can be interesting it, it can be fascinating but it's also um the second way which is to present it in a in a way that is useful so as you say for people kind of coming to shetland or visiting fair isle it's not just um okay this is 
this is a list of what's gone on in the past or the records that have gone in the past is is presented in a way that kind of gives you a feel for the different seasons and the different i suppose life cycles of this bird the birds that that come through and and what goes on when and what the birds are doing and and it kind of fires your imagination in that sense that you're not just looking to the past but you also have this kind of resource that through the way that it's presented actually makes you excited about going there and that at different times of year as well you kind of have that information presented kind of seasonally or in a way that it's really kind of quick and easy to sort of digest mm -hmm. and actually I mean it's all about the sort of future with places like this as well isn't it you kind of think it, 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 people go in there they want to be excited and they want to kind of go back again and again hopefully and to have a have a book that presents all of this I mean the, the amount of information that Feral has collected the amount of data and and kind of all these different stories um is is incredible I'm not I'm not sure that there is a bird observatory that has that breadth and depth and and duration of of information um and and it's just it's just that's our hope really that we can present it both in a way that records records it sort of for the historical record but then also is accessible and is inspiring too and 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 useful well i think if you if you're using the birds of spurn as a sort of an inspiration then i think you're you're definitely going to tick both of those boxes and i'm really really excited about seeing the book when it comes out but for someone like me who has to get a letter of permission before buying a new bird book uh, <laughs> what, yeah, you're not alone there <laughs> <laughs> what can you do for people like me who you know you say it's going to be a, a big book it's 700 pages is that what i'm reading uh, is that yeah is that's, that the, that's the game yeah yeah okay so i'm gonna have to take uh, i'm gonna have to get go back to ikea and get some new shelves for this um <laughs> un unless you can unless you can help me out in another way well i think i think that <laughs> there will hopefully later on further down the line be the option to view it online i i hope that that will be there be something that comes through but you know in the in the sense of writing a book and the producing something that people people would like okay whether they need a new ikea shelves or not um <laughs> the people are actually like to have in their homes and to pick up and like you know look at it and and i mean so few people live on Farrell who visit there or like are coming are coming through you know it's 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 going to be mostly folk who are not perhaps on shetland even so it's just something that we hope people will kind of be inspired to look at and okay yeah the book itself will be kind of a big book there's no way to avoid that really I mean we talked you won't believe this we actually talked about two volumes for it <laughs> but then there's general agreement that that would be kind of overkill like it, it one of the things about the birds of spurn is okay it is a really big book but you just you just have this one book and you can look at it and and it just fills you with kind of what well, delight really about yeah. all the different aspects of what goes on with the ornithology and the birding at Spurn and, and we hope that you know for everybody interested in visiting Isle or who's ever visited and and contributed to to the birds and birding there um we could do something that would perhaps kind of generate that same feeling of um inspiration and and okay yeah it, it's going to be a big book to start with but that doesn't mean it's bad. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It's something that some of people do generally love books, and and to kind of 
have a book you can just you know take off your shelf and look at and it really kind of brings back all the memories or as I say inspires you for your next trip and or, or just kind of gives you a bit of information about something you're interested in to, to do with the birding on Shetland Day. We just hope that it fulfill fulfil all of those different things. And, you know, we're on track to do that. Like it, it, the project is going well so far. It's a lot of work, but yeah, it's also really exciting and great to, great to be a part of it. Well, it's, I mean, yeah, like I've said, it sounds fascinating. I can't wait to see, to see it, whether I see it, whether I see a real book or a, a digital version is uh, up for debate, but that's that's my problem. That's not yours. Well, you, you, I know, I've said I, I, <laughs> through the course of us birding together when we were both in Everdeen, I had to say you you do love a digital book, like the number <laughs> the number of digital books you've got on your phone, mate. Right? <laughs> it was great. <laughs> many uh, many many uh, a, a point of detail I've been corrected thanks to one of your digital books on your phone. So. Uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully at some point, Birds of Pharaoh might be like that. But we're starting with a real thing because people do love that as well. We'll get on to the myriad of times that where I've corrected you later on, Will. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah oh, will oh, we? Oh, 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 <laughs> I look forward to that part of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be very, very short. Um, I think you'll find. <laughs> about this book, is it very important to mention that all of the proceeds of the book will be will be going into the redevelopment of, of the of the new observatory. Is that correct? Absolutely. The 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 proceeds it's, it, none of the authors get paid for this at all. Like it's mm -hmm. it's entirely voluntary in that respect. And the proceeds will go to Bear Our Bird Observatory. OK, so I mean, not only is there a great reason to buy the book in uh, that it sounds like it's going to be a really fantastic book, but it's supporting a good cause as well. And how, you know, really noble that you can all put so much time into doing something so worthwhile. So on behalf of everyone who's going to enjoy the book, thanks very much for that. Um, I should also say that, well, I'll, I'll get lynched if I don't say that SOC have had some involvement in this. We've contributed a little bit of money to the publication of the book. And I think that some of the analyses of, of migrant data that you carried out way back when were also in part funded by SOC as well. Not that we need to talk about that. It's just something that needs to be said. Um, well, it is important, you know, like SOC has been a huge pillar for 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 Fair Bird Observatory in many different ways. And, and you know, I personally am very grateful to them. And certainly Fair Bird Observatory Trust is very grateful to them. And yeah, they've they've contributed to the production and really kind of facilitation of this book. So yeah, we are extremely grateful to SOC. Thank you. Well, thank you. I'll, I'll definitely leave that bit in the podcast. <laughs> but let's let's talk about your other book now. So the other book that you've had some involvement in recently is uh, Best Days with Shetland's Birds. Now, it doesn't really say anywhere in the book, but I, I'm, I suspect that this was inspired by a book that came out maybe sort of 30 years ago called Best Days with British Birds. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Um, so it's written by, or, or rather, it was edited, and uh, you know, the, the idea came from uh, Andrew Harrop, um, and and him and Rebecca Nason edited the book, mm -hmm. and it's really a collection of people's memories of of great days on Shetland with with birds. And I'd say one thing that uh, Andrew really handled brilliantly. It was fantastic. Like was that. He didn't really specify a, a very tight remit. So mm -hmm. I think initially, maybe the idea was like people would just sort of say like a particular day. And, and some folk have done that. And that's really good. But then actually, 
the, the remit was a little bit wider in this book in that people were also kind of allowed to discuss um you know like longer longer time frames so some yeah. people kind of discuss their best birds through like a whole year others the kind of experiences over a few days others are kind of season so so i think that really helps to kind of diversify it and and, and yeah i, I mean I, okay so I, i'm one of many many authors in it but just reading reading the accounts of all these different people and 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 i suppose they some really big names in ornithology um it's just it's just brilliant like when i, I didn't actually see it before it was published so I, I got my copy and started reading and you know some of some of the kind of birders i've most looked up to and I describe as sort of mentors and, and, and birders I'd kind of grown up kind of hearing about are included in this book. And mm -hmm. it was just so exciting to read about it and not knowing what people were going to going to write. And I'd, I'd say one of the things that um, I did when I first got the copy um, was actually turn to the the stories and accounts written by Shetlanders. Yes. Um, because I guess one of the things that's noticeable about birding on Shetland is that a lot of people have moved from elsewhere to to live on Shetland to work and to bird here. But um, I, I really wanted to start with the the accounts written by Shetlanders. So I, I loved reading Dennis Coots's account of the breeding snowy owls on Fetler, and and especially Bryden Thomason's account of birding uh, Bloomall Sound. Like mm. it, it, just a really kind of personal and authentic and really really kind of genuine insight into those areas and, and a delight to read it's fantastic so can i i've been asked to review this book and i'm going to be really honest with you before i received my copy i thought crikey that that's just what i need isn't it i need to read a series of finders accounts of rarities that i've got <laughs> no chance of seeing and i i have to be honest mate i was not convinced that I was going to enjoy the book at all and I was not really looking forward to reviewing it because I didn't know. <laughs> I, think, I don't think you're alone there. I mean, you know, books like this, there's mm. a history of it basically being a bunch of men yeah. legitimately grandstanding. Yeah. And, and, you know, like people kind of people kind of imagine it as 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 page after page of blokes kind of saying things like, you know, like of my colossal track record of self finance <laughs> it's impossible to find one of sufficient enormity to recount to you. But somehow I have. And here we go. Yeah. And like, yeah. stuff like that isn't really what people to want to read. And, and, and this book isn't like that. I well, mean, OK, there's a few accounts where there's there's an element of like grandstanding and, and big talk. But actually, <laughs> Thanks to the editing by Andrew and Rebecca, like it really is something different. And and for most of them, if not all, really, you do get a personal insight into yeah. different well, things. Well, People aren't just write, writing about, you know, they, they, what they consider to be their their most enormous find. Like, actually, there's a there's a huge diversity of other kind of stories and interests as well. I was really taken by how many of these stories were basically a, des a description of a really personal connection with a place um, and it was an opportunity it felt like an opportunity for these people to write about a place or a time or something that has immense personal meaning to them and very often they're just sort of put in this box of oh I found a rarity 
but the actual story is about how this how the love of a place has has, has developed um and it makes for a much broader more rounded reading experience because of that and yes as you say you know there are accounts of great days with loads of rarities or, or monstrous rarities but all of these talk about a love of the place and talk about sort of the birding community and how how all of it sort of fits together to be something I, in my review which i may well go back and edit if this sounds a bit tacky but i sort of i talked about each story as being a love letter to sort of shetland birding and the rarity is the envelope that it's sent in i i think that's a great way to put it yeah that's really nice i i i also think that yeah well it's it's difficult to it's difficult to add to what you've just said about the book actually like i just agree with everything you've just said and the fact that i hadn't seen the accounts before i got it i i, I felt the same apprehension really like a, a series of accounts as i've said kind of predominantly men going out and and then i and then i realized i was looking at a such and such and everybody's kind of read that before but with this book there is such an insight into people's personal um i suppose experiences with shetland and and it's very different across all the different authors like that was one of the things that really surprised me firstly how you know people diff wrote very differently mm -hmm. about their different kind of things and the things that are really important to them and and i think like you know one of the things about birding generally and particularly sort of competitive birding and rarity finding is we tend to think of it all in one way and and okay like people go outside and they look for rarities and that is effectively what they do but then also everybody has so much variation in their experience of that process and and their choices regarding it so what they choose to do and how they choose to do it and where they choose to go and what as well as the rarities and as well as these kind of animals that mean so much to them what else is important to them and with this book you you really get a, a get a sense of that and it's incredible to see how how different these accounts are and how how all these different aspects of Shetland as well as the birds are so important to so many people and and also like how important the other people are to yeah. them so so a lot of the accounts have huge inclusion of other people it's not it's not just about the one person the author writing it a lot of the accounts have um you know one way or another they express how important the whole experience and the shared experience yeah yeah was to them and uh, you know i just love that like i just i just felt that was hugely important to this book and and uh, like really really lovely to read it, it reads like the, there is a very sort of well-functioning birding community on shetland and uh, in my experience that's the way it is lots of very nice helpful people you know I, I love the way on shetland for example that visiting birders are encouraged to join the whatsapp group and to share information like that you know there's no sort of exclusivity about any of it yeah i, th I think i think that that's very true i mean I, I when i moved to shetland which isn't that long ago 
you kind of feel a little bit apprehensive. Like you're kind of going to be, you're going to be bowled out instantly because you're <laughs> kind of novice and newcomer. Mm-hmm. And actually, for for folk who are either like moving to work here or to live here or are visiting, I mean, it's massively welcoming. It's 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 really really great. And I'd say that of the Burden community, but that also that's my experience of you know Shetland people. The, the, the sort of level of courtesy and the level of politeness and um, as long as it's kind of reciprocal, like you don't kind of, I don't know, appear kind of righteous or disrespectful. Like it, it's all about respect, really. And that kind of goes both ways. And, and that's just a lovely thing. It's just absolutely amazing. I agree. And my, that's certainly my experience of the place. I'd love to talk to you about this sort of thing for a bit longer, but we have some other questions <laughs> that we, we need to get through. Before we hear more from Will, here's a little interlude with some bird noises. Now it's definitely the winter, so how about some geese? I find geese pretty tricky, but there's a few hints I can give you to help you separate flight calls of grey geese. What we're going to listen to here are calls of tundra bean goose, pink-footed goose and greater white-fronted goose. And I've put them in that order because that's the order they go from generally from low frequency calls to high frequency calls. So have a listen to this. First you'll hear tundra bean goose, then pink footed goose, and then greater white fronted goose. Hopefully you'll be able to hear from that recording how the tundra bean goose is generally the lowest frequency call, then pink-footed goose, and then great white-footed goose. When I say call, geese have a range of calls, but these calls tend to occupy these slightly different frequency ranges. I'm going to play that whole goose recording again in a minute, but this time, listen to how structurally similar the tundra bean goose and the pink-footed goose calls are. The tundra beanies also have that wink-wink element that pink-footed goose has as well, but listen to how that sounds different. It's much uh, lower frequency, as I've been saying. So instead of wink-wink, it's more like a wah-wah-wah-wah. And when you get to the greater white-footed goose, as well as hearing how f- high frequency it is, listen to how sort of chattering it is, almost like a, um, a chuckling sound. Ha <laughs> 
as I said, I'm not particularly confident with goose calls. If any of these species were rare where you encounter a goose, I certainly wouldn't be identifying them by call alone. I'd, wanting, I'd be wanting some visual backup for any identification made. The, the calls can certainly be useful in helping you make that identification. And now back to a bit more from Will. For whatever reason, I think I think that I can't remember exactly how this happened, but the day that it, the day after it was found, I actually had a hospital appointment for a shattered wisdom tooth that I had to go <laughs> off Shetland for, and so like I I went off for that, and I then know. I also I also like saw the ruby throat. It'd just be rude not to. I think it was the first twitchable male, 2011. So like for me personally, it's a very kind of fortuitous event, but I'll never forget. Um, getting a phone call from Andy Clements. So I, I, I mean, I, I couldn't really believe that my phone rang and it was the head of the BTO. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that day, they'd they'd chartered a plane. I think they chartered, or they, they'd come off Fair Isle early by plane to try to see this male ruby throat, which of course was stunning and was then like it was the bird to see. And so my phone rang and it's Andy Clements. <laughs> <laughs> he said, he said, we've chartered this plane. We've just landed at Tingwall. We're now in a vehicle. And can you give us directions to the ruby throat? And so, OK, I gave them directions. But I mean, the sound effects in the background were incredible. It was unbelievable. <laughs> the whole conversation, was, it, I still look back at it. Think that was mad. So in, in, in the background, it sounded as though they were rally driving off road. Like li <laughs> literally, they'd driven across fields full, full of Shetland ponies and and I was like I don't giving them directions I'm pretty sure you've already taken a wrong turn but like I, I don't know to this day whether they did or not I could just hear this sound like they were they were well off road and they were like all these horses going everywhere but we got to the end of the conversation and there was this sound that sounded as though the car had hit a greenhouse that happened to also be filled with cats and the phone then went dead <laughs> but to this day I don't know I mean, I assume they're all still alive. They must be. <laughs> but to this day, I don't know whether they actually got to see the ruby throat. So so that's the thing. Like, if I had a time machine, I would go back to that day and I'd like, I would have called them back and said, like, did you see it? But I never did that. I mean, I could do that now, but the moment seems to have passed. But if I had a time machine, I, I, I should have really called them back and checked. Well, that's a lovely story, but it does prompt one follow-up question for me who was the lucky person who got to shatter your wisdom tooth so you could go and see this bird <laughs> you know I'd, I'd love to blame that on Jason Moss who was the other <laughs> assistant warden that day but it wasn't actually him it just like it had been dodgy all season and it it happened to shatter the week before and then <laughs> I got this hospital appointment and you know it was one of those rarities where I knew that I got this appointment and the night before, like where well, you probably remember the photos, like the first photo that came out of it, it was like way at the end of a drive at the house in Goldberwick. And it was just this sort of washed out moggy photo where right at the end, in the distance, there was this tiny bird with this dazzling red throat. And it's just so inspirational. It's like, it's a male ruby throat. It's the first twitchable male. It's like, I'm going off Shetland tomorrow, hopefully, if there are planes. And suddenly I didn't really care about whatever they might be going to do to my wisdom tooth. It was just there might be the opportunity to see that bird. And and luckily, like I phoned Dave Oakill. He picked me up straight away from the boat, from the from the plane and took me to see the ruby throat. And then, you know, I was in hospital the rest of the day. But 
yeah that that phone call from Andy Clements always stood out and and I I guess through shyness I never phoned him back but I wish I had well maybe maybe now maybe someone will get in touch who was in the car <laughs> and tell us whether they whether they saw the bird or not so uh I'm sure yeah. they did. They must have done. Like I'm sure they did. But like you know, like I I, I just felt bad for not ringing him back at the time. <laughs> I, I totally understand your reasons. Uh, it's a, it's a lovely story. While we're on about major major rarities, one of the questions I like to ask is, what do you think the next first for Scotland is going to be? And if you feel free to add as much detail to this as you like, where do you think it's going to be found? Who's going to find it? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera you know it's it's a lottery with those questions like you think do i answer it realistically or do i answer it with what i would like to happen you could do both if you want well i, I could do although like i don't think i'm re- realistically going to guess it so i'm actually <laughs> going to just say what i would like to happen fair enough yeah um and, and what i would like to happen is this autumn for alex penn and georgia platt to find a golden wing warbler on fair isle um, okay because you know they kind of quietly get on with all the work there and I just think Golden Wing Warbler on Fair Isle found by them that that'd make me really happy and probably a lot of other people as well so that that's that's what I think next first for Scotland please. Okay I'll um I'll put that in my letter to Santa Claus well while we're talking about putting things in places if you could put anything into a birding room 101 what would it be? That's really hard I think um I think it would probably be shouting. <laughs> okay, yeah. Because sometimes you, okay, the excitement gets the better of you. Like we've all sort of shouted during like birding, and sometimes like it, particularly at a big twitch where sort of one person shouting from one end to the other, it's it's you kind of always feel like it's slightly distracting from looking at the bird, and also maybe not what everybody wants to hear. So perhaps I'd put that in. But then I also kind of thought. Uh, it's another thing where everybody's guilty of it i i'm guilty of it loads of people kind of get into this frame of mind but you know sometimes when you're birding there is this kind of tendency for sort of tunnel vision um and particularly on shetland where you sort of feel well i i still feel very much like a kind of guest here like i i sort of i sort of feel like um there's there's nowhere really that doesn't kind of you know belong to sort of someone else and um it's really important to respect that sometimes you get into this sort of tunnel vision mode where like a bird goes into another croft or some something like that and like occasionally particularly on fairer like i've maybe forgot to like just check with them that it was okay so i mean you'll know what i'm talking about like it's it's kind of a sort of famous thing in birding isn't it the excitement of being somewhere with a bird kind of draws your focus it becomes sort of mission focus and maybe you kind of lose sight of the wider environment and and kind of wider courtesies for a moment so you know like when when I kind of catch myself doing that or or see it in other people occasionally like that's the kind of thing where it's yeah that would be good to be put, exactly put in room 101 yeah. I don't know like, well, is that is that unfair do you think like we're all no, guilty all because I know exactly what you mean I mean so we're guilty perhaps of the same when we go to Sandy. I mean, we've never been met by anything but very kind responses to, you know, can we come into your garden and have a look for birds? People are always interested in what we might see and people always say, yes, go ahead. But then quite often, you know, something will fly into a garden and you just find yourself standing on the road, staring in 
and then you put your bins down and there's someone standing in the window staring back at you and you, you realize that it's actually quite a sort of even you don't have to go into the garden it's it's still quite invasive and you know I, obviously we have the right to look into into people's gardens but i think we should always just remember that that you know this thing goes two ways you know it's not just about what we want we do need to remember that there are other people involved i guess that's what you're saying yeah yeah it's exactly that that's that's exactly right it's it's just that moment of you know kind of tunnel vision mission focus whatever you whatever you want to talk call it and uh, as i say when i catch it in myself or occasionally you see it in other folk and there's there are other, there's other things that may be more important at that moment yeah. as, as well as seeing the bird of course of course of course so what was the, what's the best piece of birding advice you've ever been given <laughs> i think i i'm not sure how to answer that because i suppose you know like over the years there's there's a lot of kind of mentors i've had on shetland and and my kind of birding dads as it were and <laughs> <laughs> like a lot a lot of and they probably some of them would be highly insulted to to uh to be termed that perhaps but <laughs> too late <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think i think they like you know the sort of best the best mentors they don't really give you direct advice they just sort of do something that you know kind of you need to reassess what you're doing or rethink about it <laughs> or, or that, that, that there's a better way to do it yeah and i think that that's why i say i don't really want to mention names but you know there's there's somebody on feral who has an incredible way of raising one eyebrow <laughs> I'm, I'm working with him you know like if you got if you got the eyebrow raised at you you knew that you needed to evaluate something that you were doing and maybe do it a different way or better or just listen for a moment. So I think that's that's the kind of best kind of advice that I've ever got. It's maybe not direct words, but it's just a kind of, you know, a raised eyebrow or some other kind of like body language or movement or behavior where you just kind of get the message without needing to be told directly. I like that. I like that a lot. I think it probably sticks with me more <laughs> when you work out the message for yourself rather than rather than having having to be told it. But Absolutely. This... Someone, someone who has the subtlety to be able to like communicate a very kind of clear message without actually just brass necking it or firing <laughs> it straight at you. <laughs> that's uh that's the greatest advice i think so perhaps you've had an eyebrow raised at you for this then what's uh what's <laughs> the biggest biggest mistake you've ever made apart from coming on this podcast what's the biggest yeah, exactly. mistake you've ever made in birding <laughs> oh there'd be so many you know there's so many there's so many kind of misidentifications and and things you want to go back to i once uh I've once misidentified a a pigeon as a crane, and I was at I was at I should admit this. This will come back to me big style. <laughs> but it was one of the. I was quite young. That's that's my my caveat. <laughs> and it was the first time I I'd gone to. It was when I was living in East Anglia, and and we'd done this kind of trip to try to see cranes at Hickling. And I, I mean, I was on the ceiling. I was actually buzzing. I don't think I'd ever seen a crane before. And, you know, just blurted out the first kind of grey back that I saw in a field. I just blurted out, there's a crane. And the guy I was with looked over, he's like, do you know how big cranes are? And that they have pretty long necks and really long legs. 
<laughs> I look back at it, and there's a wood pigeon. I was like, oh god, let's <laughs> just let's uh, just wind that back in. But you know, like everyone makes them. Everyone, yeah. everyone has them. And I always think, you know, like when you go birding, everyone's allowed one or two or three. <laughs> yeah. Out of all the identifications you make in, even in a day, you maybe identify thousands of different birds. So occasionally you're gonna slip up, aren't you? Everybody's human. I think that well, I agree completely. I mean, there's nobody out there who doesn't make mistakes, and luckily, there's no there's nobody out there who knows how many mistakes I make. I, I get to I get to some insight into some of those. I think perhaps well, first of all, making those mistake, mistakes is totally fine. I think that we sort of it's become a bit of a sort of a taboo in yeah. in, in birding that you just like people, some people are very sort of reluctant to talk about any errors that they've made um and i'd love to i'd love to sort of do that would be what i would put into a birding room 101 i think actually getting you know letting us sort of talk more openly about the things that we get wrong and stuff like that i totally agree i, I mean i i kind of I, I think that was one of the things i wanted to put into a 101 room 101 and i didn't really know how to articulate it <laughs> because i think there's sort of two different ways isn't it so kind of there's two different things there's, there's kind of one thing where I mean, birding is such a sort of harsh culture. Everybody sort of reviews each other, really. Like that does happen. So often, <laughs> you kind of hear about birders who have found and identified some amazing birds, really challenging IDs, and then somebody will pipe up with, "Oh yeah, but you got that one wrong." It's like, <laughs> yeah, but it's one among millions. Yeah. They got right. And you're thinking that kind of that. I mean, that's a pretty that's a pretty intensely critical kind of outlook and mm -hmm. so like yeah I'd, I'd like to sort of see that kind of thing go into room 101 but then I suppose the other thing is sometimes it is really difficult because you're just you're caught up in the moment like it's so exciting when you see something like a, a, that you've never seen before or suddenly you're you're confronted by this sort of jigsaw puzzle the different identification features all of which you know that you have never seen before and mm. your brain just kind of explodes and all kinds of things blurt out of your mouth, maybe without even you realising it. And, and before you know it, you've kind of called it, you called it an elephant or something like that. <laughs> I've never you've done called, that. You've called a wood pigeon a crane, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it's so easily done. And and like, I think that's part of the thing. And, and a sort of bit of kind of human friendly sympathy to that kind of thing is, is really important. I think if, you know, if we, if we like the idea of birding becoming sort of welcoming and inclusive, then I think that that's probably one of the first things we need to address is this sort of very critical approach that we have to one another. I think particularly to people that we don't know, you know, people's people's reputations travel far and wide. And you like exactly like you say, you hear about all the things that they do and then you hear about the very few times they they make a little mistake. And all of a sudden, somebody's reputation is in the bin. And I think that's that's desperately unkind, really. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think I think it's. It can be very harsh and kind of bitter and like competitive, but not in a good way, birding. Yeah. Um, and and those sort of moments where. You know, there's a sort of sudden turn of negativity about something that is really pretty piffling. I don't really like that, but you know, it's, it is part of birding, but it's not especially good nature or good humoured, I suppose. Um, and and maybe 
I don't know, like maybe kind of being honest about mistakes and um, the things you got wrong in the past is a good way to sort of soften it a little bit. I, th I think that it's hard to know really how to kind of how to kind of change that culture because I suppose social media is a really kind of critical environment sometimes as well and it's I think it's easy to sort of you see something on social media perhaps where for example somebody's trying to feel their way with an identification and suddenly it kind of gets blown out of all proportion that they've already got it wrong mm -hmm. and you know like everybody's kind of seen that maybe been a part of it and that's a very difficult situation to kind of engage with too I think and yeah I, mean, like I, I don't really like it but it does happen I think we can just try and be the change that we want to see so we can have these conversations openly and I think that you know when we read rarity like finders accounts stuff like that you know you, you never you very seldom read someone saying I didn't really know what I was talking about so I phoned someone who knew more about these things you know that yeah. that that little detail very seldom makes it into the edit I think and it would be a much more it would be much more healthy if if we kept that sort of thing in I agree like I mean it's sort of it's kind of a it's kind of a way of learning isn't it as well mm -hmm. like yeah a sort of appreciation of maybe you are looking at something which is really challenging it's really difficult identification there's a lot going on it's moving all the time it's in cover or it's between waves or whatever it is like bird identification can be extremely difficult and you know like anything else like just to turn to a, a source of either greater information or greater experience I don't really see that's that's shameful in any way at all like it's just how you learn or, or even uh, just someone to hold your hand and say yeah I agree with you mate that looks like a whatever it is you know that's yeah, that's yeah, yeah it's kind of the backup and uh, you know like going back to the the best days with Shetland birds book like that is something that I kind of really like like the the sort of openness and and also um that kind of enjoyment of the shared experience like be it once the bird has been identified or before that even kind of sharing an experience where you're kind of working towards an identification or you're you're not sure and so you kind of phone a few people with more experience who would be really interested and and that way you get to the kind of end result and yeah. it's, it's it's just one of those things like no, no one's going to look at a bird and just immediately identify it all the time are they like that's not a thing it cannot work like that it can't it can't happen yeah. and yet so often like when it doesn't happen people are just immediately vilified for it <laughs> um it's it's a tricky situation and yeah i think like birding birding culture can be extremely harsh and actually exclusive because of that and to change that make it more inclusive and and um, maybe a little bit more kind of forgiving would be good good well I'm glad we agree on that right what problems are we going to solve next <laughs> <laughs> I think I think this is a very appropriate time to to call it a day unfortunately I've really enjoyed speaking to you about the books especially and some uh, some nice reminiscences as well so thanks very much for coming on and talking to me that's that's a pleasure it's just it's just great to catch up with you and you know to talk about um the books and, and talk about birding it's uh, <laughs> it's a delight thanks for having me we're gonna have some more bird noises now more wintry bird noises as well but a far cry from geese we're gonna listen to some finch calls specifically 
Chaffinch and Brambling flake calls, and we're going to listen to how to separate those two. Uh, and Chaffinch and Brambling are pretty similar in structure and plumage, certainly on poor views, and the calls can be really, really useful. Chaffinch and Brambling have got two types of calls, I guess, and we're going to have a listen to both of them, but we're going to focus on the more similar sort of chup-chup-chup calls that they make in between their more distinctive calls. So have a listen to this. So what we heard there were the pink flight calls of Chaffinch followed by the wheezing, upslurred, nasal flight calls of Brambling. However, it's the subtly different chup flight calls, the contact calls, that we're interested in here. So have a listen to these two recordings. First, we'll hear Chaffinch and then Brambling again. To me, the chaffinch contact call is a much richer sound, a more of a chup, 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 compared to the brambling, which is a sort of a flatter sound, a bit more of a chap, chap, chap. And that's pretty subtle, but with practice, you can pick it up and you can start to separate chaffinch and brambling without hearing the pink call or the nasal wheezing call of a brambling. So next time you're out in the woods, have a listen out for those calls, see if you can pick out one from the other. And that's it for this month's Summer Ornithological Chat. Thanks very much to Will for coming along and telling us about the two books that he's been involved with. Best Days with Shetland Bird is out now. would make a really nice Christmas present for someone, I suspect. And I'm really looking forward to seeing The Birds of Farrell when that comes out. Thanks also to Zeno Canto for providing hundreds upon thousands of bird calls for people like me to use for this sort of thing and for many, many other uses as well. The recorders of the individual recordings that I use for the goose section are credited in the uh, notes for the podcast. While you're browsing around on the internet, do be sure to take a look at the SSC web pages. We've got loads of really, really fantastic stuff there to take a look at. I think that if you are interested in joining SSC, you might be interested in looking at the Scottish Birds pages, you can have a sneak peek at the current issue to see what the content is like. And you might also be interested in taking up digital membership. If you don't have any room on your shelves like me, then getting Scottish Birds into your inbox might be the thing for you. Go and have a look. And until the next time, good birding. <laughs>